Hello, and welcome to the Understanding Autism podcast, where we talk about issues related to those in the autism and greater neurodiverse communities. I'm your co-host, Brett Thayer. And I am Nicole Cabillas. Today's episode is about why people with autism struggle with transitions. We're going to talk about why change creates stress for everyone and how that applies to people with autism, why people have resistance to change, and solutions for helping a person with autism deal with transition stress. All right. And so what we have for you is a whole bunch of resources. So we're going to talk about them and how this can help people on the spectrum. So the first resource we have is a website called Five Forces for Change. And according to that website, there are many reasons why change creates stress for everyone. Um, it's a primal instinct. Change in the environment is perceived as a threat. We're always attuned to our environment and change indicates danger. Stress created by, is created by two factors, severity of the impact of change and the resources we have to handle the change, which may include past experiences coping with change, positive and negative experience of change, strategies to help dealing with change, um, and attunement to risk. If the impact of the change is more severe than the resources can handle, that creates stress. All right, so how does this apply to people with autism? The environment is seen as a threat because it is overwhelming and overstimulating. Predictability and routine reduces the danger triggers. When the nervous system is overtaxed, every small type of change can feel overwhelming and hard to deal with. When you're overtaxed, your resourcefulness to handle the change decreases. It takes more resourcefulness and sometimes different types of resource to cope with change for a person with autism. But when a person is or has a highly sensitive nervous system and low frustration tolerance, the severity of the change impacts increases. All right, so another resource we have in her article, What is the Resistance to Change by Jennifer Delgado? She states that it is crucial to develop a level of tolerance to change that will allow us to deal with transformations without compromising too much of our psychological balance. Delgado talks about seven phases of resistance to change. One of the phases is shock. We have entered a free state that makes it look as though we are going along with the change. Our rational mind has not processed the change and what it means to us. It could be good or bad. Then there's denial, which could also be described as the neg negative phase. Continuing to live our lives as if nothing happened. By grasping to our everyday routines, we recover the feeling of control. Then there's wrath. When we cannot deny the change, we react with anger, frustration, and rage. Catastrophizing thinking happens. We go to negotiation, which is trying to find a way out, although this is useless because the change has already happened and we are struggling to cope with it. This is a form of avoidance. At that point, we go into the depression stage where change is inevitable. Because we don't accept it, we get depressed or irritated. Then we go to the test finding solutions and coping mechanisms to fit with our new reality. We try to see change in a new perspective. And after we do that, we hit the stage of acceptance, finding balance through adaptive behavior that helps us to rebuild our identity in new circumstances. Let's talk about how these seven phases of resistance to change applies to autism. And specifically, we'll talk about a transition that most children with autism struggle with, transitioning from one class to the next. So in the first phase is sh with shock, there's a special interest. 
the child is being pulled out of an engrossing activity and that can create a state of shock and distress. The child is transitioning from an enticing and enjoyable activity to one that is boring and challenging. Um, in a regular class, the child might be overwhelmed or feel scattered, which deals with executive functioning, either barely catching up or just getting the hang of it. Changing to another class can feel like the rug is being pulled out from under their feet. The magnitude of shock this mundane transition can cause is akin to experiencing a breakup or your digital file being corrupted right before a deadline. Then at the denial stage, the child continues to do the activity that they prefer or they may shut down. This is a way to create stability and balance in the nervous system when there is a perceived threat and anxiety spike caused by the transition. Though to the neurotypical person, the child with autism may look as though they're ignoring them or being defiant. At the wrath stage, when the change is forced upon them without preparation and autonomy on their terms, the meltdown occurs. The change can feel threatening or like a devastating loss. Negotiation is when the person with autism starts having avoidant behavior, such as running away, shutting down, having a meltdown, or doing the preferred activity against someone else's wishes. Then there's the depression phase. That's when the change occurs anyway, despite the best efforts to rage or avoid. The child will continue to have a meltdown or a tantrum from a place of depression and irritation from the loss. Once they go to the test phase at another time, when the child is calm, this is the stage when the child comes up with resources and coping strategies to deal with predictable change. This change is rehearsed and given advance notice. There is assurance that the child can go back to a preferred routine after the stressful transition to let them know that the change isn't the end of the world. Triggers that cause the stress of change are assessed, such as an unpreferred subject, having to do homework, being separated from a friend or changing peers in a classroom, energy levels, sensory input during transitions, and other factors. Once they reach the acceptance phase, transitioning from one class to the next is more manageable. The child is able to successfully cope with the change with a new set of resources, knowing that the change is not going to create danger. Adaptability is key. All right, and another source we have, in his 27 article called Why We Resist Change, Ralph Ryback talks about change inertia. Inertia is the tendency to do nothing or remain unchanged. Now, he goes on to say, no matter how motivated we are to change, we tend to do things that make us feel secure, comfortable, and good. The goal is to maintain homeostasis or an equilibrium. This is a biological need and transitions negatively impact that. Resistance behavior is a biological reaction to change, which is why people with autism have meltdowns from transition stress. All right. Now, what we have is a whole bunch of really good solutions and ideas to use when you're helping somebody with autism deal with change. All right. So it's important to think about small scale versus big scale or large scale transitions. All right. So, for example, the elements of change, stress, Building frustration tolerance for change, bringing body into homeostasis during a change activity, and adapting transition routines to work for a child's preferences. Having transitional cues, verbal transition warnings and timers can help. Transition routines, a visual schedule, setting up transition landmarks. Having transition objects that can soothe anxiety. Transitioning alone or with an adult rather than with peers. Finding alternative route to change. 
um, removing sensory stressors that occur before during transitions. Seven senses, eating food, going to the bathroom, getting enough to sleep, for example. Determine what triggers are taxing and exhausting the nervous system holistically beyond the transition activity. There's somatic activities, mindful movements in preparation for transitions. Sometimes getting the body to move in a way that signifies to the brain that it's time to transition and calming the body down before the transition can be helpful. This allows time for slow processing speed for the transition. Making meaning and problem solving. Discuss why the change is happening and beneficial to the child in a way that makes sense for them. Problem solve resources to help the child cope with the change. Break down the transition act activity into steps. Explore what parts of the activity are soothing and which are stressful. Clearly indicate when the transition activity is over. You can also talk about resources for coping with change and how they can be beneficial. Also, neurotypical people can share why transitions are stressful for them and how they cope with it to normalize the stress. Talk about the seven stages of change, resistance, and practice mindful awareness, how each stage feels in the body with each circumstance. Indicate when the transition is over and reward for going through the transition. Reduce the amount of transitions in a person's day. What are the small transitions that the person feels comfortable in handling? And what feels like a transition that pushes them to the edge? And what is a transition that feels unbearable? Using social stories to deal with change and walk through the steps of transition. Having a toolkit for the child and parent dealing with routine change. For example, transitioning from one class to the other. And spontaneous change. So missing an important movement or an appointment during traffic, for example. That's kind of unpredictable change. What is your toolkit to handle that? Uh, the goal is to reduce or eliminate the severity of the threat as much as possible. And finally, break down complex tasks into smaller chunks and be patient with the completion process. I want to disclaim really quick that even though a lot of these solutions are, are worded in a way that seem like they're directed towards parents helping kids with autism, a lot of these tools are actually really helpful for adults with autism trying to independently manage change on their own. And it's really important to think about autonomy in relation to change. You know, what choices do you have control over as you are navigating that change? And that's really important because when you're a kid, you, you don't recognize you have that autonomy. And so that's why it's important for adults to get in there and help. Um, and, you know, adult caregivers can certainly help an adult with autism. Um, but, you know, a lot of these skills can be independently applied for adults as well. Absolutely. And the whole goal is to help the child understand um, what the change is and what transitions are and help them give them the tools to help them through this. So in when they become adults, that they already have some of these tools and resources that have worked for them in the past. Yeah. Well, and I think back to some struggles adults have, like, you know, getting your first job, moving out of the house. I know oh, there are some people with autism that struggle with the transition of, you know, having their significant other move in with them or getting married. And I mm -hmm. think it's really important to look at those uh, seven stages and really think about, like, how am I going to feel and how am I going to move through those seven stages? Because I think a lot of adults with autism, when they know that they're going to go into that wrath or depression stage, they just halt it. 
And, right. you know, that's part of the challenge of being an autonomous adult is you don't have an, a, you know, a neurotypical caregiver saying, well, we're going to do this transition anyway. The right. adult with autism is, is just making sure the transition doesn't happen to begin with. And so I think it's important to kind of slow down the process with maybe a therapist and, and really unpacking what is it about this transition that is creating so much anxiety for me and, and also working through how those transitions are creating natural stress responses and how to work through them. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, these are, these are life skills for sure, because we all go through changes and transitions. It happens to all of us and having yeah. that toolkit is super, super important. And by the way, um, all the articles that we talk about, we'll, we'll put those in the show notes, links to those. They are fantastic articles. And, and I think it's, you know, important to reiterate that transition stress is hard for everybody not just mm -hmm. people with autism and, and these authors are neurotypical authors. They're not writing from the perspective of supporting people with autism. Mm -hmm. So I think they do a really good job of describing, you know, how change and transitions are taxing for us, whether right, we definitely. choose that transition or not. All right, let's awesome. keep going. Um, let's talk about how we personally relate to transition changes. Brett, there are a few questions that I want to ask you related to this topic. First, what were your son Josh's experiences with transitions and what were his biggest transition struggles? Okay, so we talked about this a little bit in a, a previous episode, but um, it was between grades, um, between schools. This, this was the source of high stress, right? And so, you know, I liken it to um, it's the unknown, and um, all of these things that is going through his mind, you know, what am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to be? It's new places, new teachers, new sounds, new routines. And, you know, he doesn't know any of these things. He just, he just can, um, he knows that these changes are coming, but he doesn't have answers to all of those really basic kind of questions. What would you say was the biggest transition struggle he's ever dealt with? Oh, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about that one. I don't know. I mean, it was, it's, it's pretty much the, the big transitions from ele probably elementary school to middle school, right? That was because the he's, one. yeah, I, I think so. Because, you know, as he's going and, you know, the whole middle school experience was a challenge right there, actually. Um, and then transitioning from middle school to high school, I, I think the, uh, the elementary school to middle school was the biggest one because he's still young. He's not being, he can't process these things. Um, he, you know, it's a big, huge change because he finally figured out elementary school. Six years of elementary school, you, you figure it out. It's the same building. You know who your teachers are. You know who your resources are in sixth grade. And all of a sudden you're told that you have to go to middle school, right? It's a big place. There's bigger kids there. You're not, you know, the king of the hill anymore and as a sixth grader. You're at the bottom of the totem pole, you know, there's just a lot of, there's just a lot of stress right there. Yeah. Right? I could see that because I feel like the transition from middle school to high school maybe isn't as abrupt because there's a lot of things in middle school, like lockers and yes. changing classes and not yes. necessarily having a homeroom teacher where mm -hmm. it's certainly different. And, you know, high school is very intimidating, but I can only imagine, you know, if you have one teacher mm -hmm. and when you transition, you're transitioning with your class rather than 
I got to look at my schedule and I got to find uh, my classes right. by myself right. at, you know, certain intervals. Yeah, I could totally understand why elementary school would be really, really difficult. And then on top of that, you know, I'm thinking back to my elementary placements. Like, I feel like my, when we were waiting for our elementary classes to come, I mean, the hallways were, nobody was really there. And yeah. the teachers do such a good job of making sure that they're very well behaved in that line, mm-hmm. you know, and I think back to, you know, compared to in middle school or high school where you have passing periods and everybody is in the hallway all at once, yeah. that's gotta it's, be it's chaos. Oh, well, middle school is chaos in general, it is. but <laughs> it is. you know, and that's just the reflection of the age, but gosh, I don't, I don't think my transition to middle school was hard. But yeah, it's, it's interesting you talk right. about that because I feel like when I talk to other adults with autism, they always say that their biggest transition struggle was from high school to college or college to work. And I had a, a friend who said that going from high school to college was so scary to him mm. because he went from, you know, somebody giving him structure. Now, granted, when you're in high school, you you still have to sign up for your own classes, mm-hmm. but it's the difference of you have these adults around you that are providing structure, or there's a system that's giving you structure and predictability. Mm-hmm. And then you go to college or you get a job and all of a sudden there's no structure. You create your own structure. Yeah, that's true. And, and, and to compound that, if you're the type of autistic person who's like, I have no idea what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. after high school like i struggled with school i don't even know if i want to go to college like that transition is sure. majorly stressful sure so how did the challenges with josh's transition stress impact you and your family and how did you address it or work with it okay so for example we knew that these were going to be major uh, sources of stress for josh so we knew that meltdowns would occur and ha- did occur. So what we would do is we would try to anticipate this change. So we're, we're trying to answer those questions that he would have naturally to um, help him kind of understand that this change is happening and um, give, him, give him some mental perspective of what this is all going to look like. So what does that mean? We try to get a tour of the school when nobody else is there, right? We get to walk the halls go through a schedule. This is where your first class is. This is where your second class is. This is where your locker is. Let's try to open your locker. Right. Um, so we, we try to, we try to predict as much as we could for him about, uh, this, this change and what's going to look like. So it's less scary. Mm-hmm. I, I just thought of this. Did Josh have transition stress going from, you know, living at home to preschool or preschool to kindergarten? I'm sure. I'm sure. Because at each time he's in one place. And as soon as that felt comfortable, whoop, it's, you know, you're there for a year and now it's time to go to, to a brand new school. Yeah. Yeah. So did his transition anxiety, you know, impact you and his mom at the time? Well, yeah. I mean, we we're trying to, you know, he's stressed, we're stressed, everybody's stressed. So we, you know, Having, you know, trying to be rational and talking him through it um, reduced his stress and then reduced our stress, too. It doesn't mean that he still wasn't stressed about this, 
um, and didn't have struggles, but some of those questions at least were answered. Mm -hmm. Did Josh experience transition stress with large life milestones like adult independence? Okay, so now he's, Josh is now in college. And so just to talk about, you know, that college experience. So um, first he went to a community college um, and it helped that he kind of had resources along the way, right? So his brother also went to uh, the same community college. So they would, you know, take a ride together, or get there in a car together so that he had that resource. And then when he was in um, high school, when he went to high school, I was a teacher there. So for four years, I was able to help him through the high school experience, right? And he knew that if, you know, if there was a problem, he could come to my room and find me, and then I can help him through whatever he was going through. Um, when it came to college, though, so when he when he finished uh, the community college and he went to uh, the university, then another transition, right? So we took a tour, um, and part of it was, okay, you're gonna you're gonna take your car, you're gonna park in this parking lot. From this parking lot, you're gonna take the train from here to Denver, right? From Denver, you're gonna you know walk from here to the campus, and we we did the route, we planned it. Um, we took a Saturday, an all day kind of trip, and just walked around the campus and did did the whole thing, and then came back. And then I said to him, you know, do you picture yourself being here? He goes, yeah. Do you, do you, can you handle all this? He goes, yeah, I, can, I get it now. So, you know, walking him through that, you know, just takes away those, those, those uh, you know, the fear of the unknown. And, and we all go through that, right? So even if, if we have a new job or, you know, when we start classes as teachers, you know, the, the first thing, that very first day when everybody's trying to find, you know, their classroom, they want to know, Am I in the right place and where's my seat, <laughs> right? You know, that's, that's day one. And so I'm trying to help Josh figure all that out. And as we do that, then it just kind of, you know, the tension goes down a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was thinking back to what you were saying about how you were a chaperone, basically, trying mm -hmm. to walk through everything. I mean, I'm thinking about people with autism who want to study out of state mm. or in a town that's maybe further away from where they live. I mean, for a parent to go out of their way mm -hmm. to, you know, possibly stay there for a week or two to, you know, really help that person with autism getting acquainted. I mean, right. I think that that the choice of where to go is really tough. And I, and I, I mean, I went to art school in Savannah, Georgia, and, you know, there were people with autism that were there. And I don't know how many of them were in state or out of state, but mm -hmm. I mean, we had to, it, uh, most art schools don't have a campus. The city is the campus. And so mm -hmm. that just adds like this whole extra layer of like making sure you figure out when the bus comes and right, right. making sure you don't miss the bus. And what if you have a back-to-back -back class and what do you have to, you know, what if mm -hmm. you have to walk? And I think sometimes I wonder if people with autism will look at a school, they'll look at a degree and they're like, oh my God, this is my dream. This is what I want to do. And, and they're not necessarily thinking about, you know, what it, am I going to be able to handle living with a roommate in a dorm right? No, yeah, uh, you know, or, or moving to another state, like mentally you think you can handle it and then you're actually there mm -hmm. and it's a lot harder than you think it is. And so I think I think that's why, like what you were saying earlier, it's so important that there's kind of a, a scope to life on your own, you know, prior mm -hmm. 
to actually making that commitment. Um, I mean, I remember my husband, who's not autistic, he he wanted to go to an art school in Seattle, and his mom took him all over uh, Seattle, and mm-hmm. you know they did the whole simulation thing, and he right, right. realized on that trip he, he it was too much. He didn't want to like, nope. do it, so yeah. So he ended up going to um, a university a lot closer to where. Um, absolutely, absolutely. He lived. And so I think that, you know, that is beneficial mm-hmm. um, for everybody mm-hmm. to just kind of get that, like that scope. And, absolutely. you know, especially like some people are, you know, better learners online. Some people need school or like you said earlier, like maybe community college is better just for them to get the experience of what right. college is like on a right. significantly smaller scale. Right. And, and taking classes that, you know, matter to the matter to you more as opposed to, you know, um, the other classes that uh, I really don't have to take this. Yeah. Well, and the other thing. And I don't fault parents for doing this, but I do feel like. When a child becomes a young adult, graduates from college, becomes independent, it's like the parent just expects that the young adult child is going to have it all figured out, you know, knowing how to look for a place to rent and right, paying sometimes. bills and managing your own schedule and waking up right. to an no, alarm. It's, and yeah. for a person with autism, that's just too much. It's a so, lot. So you're, you're throwing in the adult independent skills on top of, you know, mm-hmm. living life by yourself in a, in a college setting. And so I do think if you do the community college route, you know, you can kind of slowly trickle in those adult independent skills. So it's not this giant overwhelm of everything happening at once. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that'll, that'll help. I mean, you know, whether you're autistic or not, adult independence is a very stressful transition. Oh, and you, and you have to figure it out, right? You don't have all the answers. Yeah. One of the biggest transition struggles for parents is the transition of raising a quote unquote normal child to raising a child with autism. I'm not talking specifically about neurotypical parents grieving the loss of having a normal child, but about transitioning from familiar parenting values and approaches to neurodiverse friendly parenting. Uh, Was this a transition that was a struggle for you? And if so, how did you deal with it? Okay, so one of the things um, that we, I don't know, we try to model things, um, but when we were... um, moving a lot. So um, Josh's mother and I are divorced. And so um, she, you know, he's living with her part of the time and I'm moving. I'm moving from apartment to apartment to finally get a home to then getting remarried and then moving and and combining households. I mean, all that was a transition and all that was a change. And so throughout each one of those things, you know, I'm kind of explaining to, to Josh, okay, this is, you know, we're moving from here, we're moving from there. And he, he got it. Um, he was, you know, kind of along for the ride at that point, but um, he understood that, yep, changes happen and you just kind of model the process. That's going to be really hard when, you know, you're balancing a divorce mm-hmm. and you're having to, you know, figure out how to parent somebody right. who has very particular needs. Right. And I didn't have all the answers. Let me tell you that. Yeah, actually, um, 
So just recently, my mom and I met a woman who has a teenage son on the spectrum, and she was like very freshly going through a divorce. Right. And, um, and I had asked her like, how has the divorce impacted your son? And she said, it's one of those things where it, it's not that she felt like her son had a favorite parent, mm-hmm. but she said that her ex-husband was just more good at structure and predictability. And so right. Right, her right. son really gravitated towards him and had a really hard time uh, wanting to spend time with her. And she had a really tough time with that yes. because she just, you know, she felt like she, and granted, yes. I think she had two other kids, mm-hmm. but it's that, that feeling of like the family isn't quite together. And so even though the other two kids would transition between households, no problem, the autistic son just couldn't do it. Right. Um, He right. had to stay with one parent in one place. And so she was like, I you know, as, as hard as it is for me, I understand that that's the best decision for him. Yeah. And I, I can relate to that. So Josh, I mean, we had two different households when I got remarried, we had two different households and it was a, it was a transition right there, right. Going from one house to another house because we had different routines. We had different rules. You know, I'm the more predictable. This is how it is. It's you know, and there was a struggle. It's like, what do you mean? I can't do anything that I want anytime that I want and blah, blah, blah. It's like, nope, you're in our house now and these are the rules. So yes, there was like a day or two of uh, transition stress right there as, yeah. as he re, readjusted to um, living with me as opposed to his mother and vice versa. Yeah, well, and and I was thinking in a future podcast episode, I really want to talk about like, you know, if, if you have a step parent and, mm-hmm. you know, that step parent is co-parenting, raising a child with autism. Cause I can't tell you how many, uh, step parents I've met mm-hmm. that are like, do you have advice for me about, you know, how to support this child that isn't biologically mine? And, mm. and it's a really fascinating topic. And so, yeah, we'll have know, to see if I can get my wife on that. That'd be, <laughs> yeah, that'd be totally. hilarious. Yeah. Well, and then the other thing I was thinking about with this idea of, um, neurodiverse friendly parenting. So I had a student um, whose mom, she was this fantastic, uh, you know, autism advocate parent who loved both of her kids. Um, she had a daughter and a transgender son and both of them had autism. And she said, you know, you think with the first child that, you know, you finally figure out what it means to know how to parent a child with autism. Mm -hmm. And then you have the second child with autism and the approaches for the first child don't necessarily work for the second child. Yeah. And so she said that was very, very challenging. Um, and I'm trying, well, and I think to kind of boil it down, like she said that her first child was very, um, very structured rule oriented, you know, she would never break a rule ever. And the second child was, um, I don't want to say a rebel, but like, I guess wasn't attuned Mm -hmm. to the rigidity of like following rules and all that kind of stuff. And so, um, and and I think it just goes to show that like every person with autism is different. And, and I will say like being an autistic person myself who wants kids, I mean, I get concerned about like, even though I feel like I have a good understanding of what neurodiverse parenting 
would be, mm-hmm. I don't know what kind of child I'm going to have. I don't know if my child's struggles are going to be similar to mine. Right. Um, and so I, I think that there's just this unknown that comes with parenting a child with autism, whether you are versed in the world of autism or not. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Lastly, how do you model the way you handle transitions to support Josh's ability to handle transitions? Okay. So like, like we, you know, talked about a little bit, um, it was always trying to talk about how to predict or anticipate what the changes are going to look like and then how to respond to them. Right. So for example, walking through the classes or changes or walking through, um, you know, when he's in high school, it's like, because every, every semester is different with new classes. Do you know where your classes are? Let's walk through that. Have you met your teachers? We can do that real quick. Um, in high school, because, you know, I'm there and I can introduce you to things. Um, you know, where are you going to get your lunch? How are you going to get that? You know, all of those kinds of things. And then when we do the move, you can just kind of model, model those kinds of behaviors in my own life. Um, more, more recently, you know, he's, he's thinking about post-college, right? And he's, you know, that's a source of stress because, again, there's a whole bunch of unknowns. So then my, my um, suggestion to him is like, all right, so think about what you want to do. Think about your ideal job and then work backwards from that. So imagine that you um, have all these skills already and that you're going to apply to company X. So get on, get on their website talk to human resources or do some research, you know, right? How, who are they hiring? What kind of qualities do that, does that person have? What kind of degrees would they need to have that? And then work your way backwards, right? So what college would, would have those kinds of things? And then how do you get into those, that college? So it's kind of like, you know, taking the scariness out of it, the unknown out of it, and then breaking it down into concrete, rational steps where he's in control of doing the research um, about it and then making those connections for him. Yeah. And I think it's also important and, you know, I'll speak for myself and my friends, like you graduate college and you think, oh, I'm going to get my dream job right away. Oh, I know. I can and testify to that. That didn't I happen. mean, that rarely happens. And even your first job, even if it's your dream job, it's not always a dream. And so I think that can be really hard because, you know, for somebody with autism, like if you have that structure of like, these are the steps and this is right, right. where I'm going to land and I'm going to be happy. It um, doesn't always work out. Well, and, and a person with autism can feel very rigid about the conditions of their job because, you know, there are just certain jobs in the world that are just not good for a person with autism. True. And so, you know, rarely do you see a person with autism working in retail. And so Mm -hmm. it's like if they're in that situation where like they're struggling to to get that dream job or like they they have that issue most autistic people have with interviewing, you know, that can create challenges. So as a parent, do you say, all right, well, you're going to find a job, whether or Mm -hmm. not it's your ideal job, or do you give them grace and patience to find Mm -hmm. that ideal job? That can be really challenging, I think, for parents to navigate. And and just to talk about that, because we're going to have future podcast episodes where we talk about uh, transitioning from school to work, and we're going to have guests on who help students on the spectrum manage that and actually shadow them at, at workplace. I think that's a great idea. Um, we're going to highlight some of those, the people who do that, have them, you know, have an interview and to really discuss that, because I think that's huge when you can have people 
there with you if you're on the spectrum to kind of guide you through, okay, this is what work looks like. Yeah. All right. So let's shift gears a little bit. Enough about me, Nicole. How <laughs> did you handle um, transition struggles? So I actually really didn't have, I mean, there might've been a struggle going into kindergarten. I remember my brother and I had a lot of separation anxiety from my mom. And by the way, my brother's not autistic. He just, he's a mama's boy. Mm -hmm. um, but I feel like every transition after that, I was looking forward to middle school and high mm. school and college. Mm -hmm. um, now, granted, I, I'm a school nerd. I like right. my entire life, including my work as a teacher, I have been in schools for my whole life, basically. So mm -hmm. I don't know. It's just it's it's a place that I really enjoy and thrive in. And I actually remember when I was dealing with my um, college transition struggles where uh, I remember like the first quarter, it was like, oh, this is adventure. And it really felt more like camp and and it was hard. And then when I came back for winter quarter, the depression hit because it was like, oh, great, I got to <laughs> go through this all over again. And mm -hmm. and uh, and I didn't like living in a dorm where I didn't have my own privacy and that kind of thing. Right. And and I remember that the one thing that made me capable of handling those transitions were my classes, mm. because I knew what was, you know, I, I knew the routine of finding my classes and the routine of doing homework and talking to teachers. And that was being expected. And mm -hmm. that really soothed me when I had to deal with all the other personal living transition stresses. Mm. Um, now, a transition stress that I've had basically my entire life is transitioning from Sunday to Monday okay. or the weekend uh, to the work week. Um, I struggled with this as a kid. I struggled with this as a teacher. Mm. Um, I always got major anxiety about going back to school. And part of that had to do when I was a kid it had to do with social anxiety. So it was never like, oh, you know, I put something off or the stress of academics. It was always having to be around peers. Um, and it, and it, it didn't matter whether or not I was getting bullied. It, it didn't matter whether or not I had friends. I just didn't want to be around people. Mm. And, um, and I do think that that might have come from a feeling of not belonging but I would say more importantly, uh, I just, I could spend my entire day in my room mm. and I would lock myself in my room and I would draw, write, play video games. I, <laughs> I am a very big make-believe person. Um, mm -hmm. So I have engaged in make-believe play from being a child to today as a 32-year-old adult. Mm -hmm. Um, and I used to be really insecure about it, but I had a therapist that understood that make-believe was a very big part of my creative process as, mm. as an artist, as uh, a creative writer. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and sometimes like it's an escape for me. Like if I'm having a hard time with aspects of my reality, like it's fun to just kind of escape in my head, um, mm. And, you know, sometimes I used make-believe as a way to figure out what my values were with my social life. And it was a way for me to curate, like, the type of friends I wanted and how I felt belonged. Mm -hmm. um, and I will say, like, as an adult, um, I haven't 
worked since I left my teaching job in December and I'm, I'm about to start a remote master's program in counseling. I haven't left my apartment much, not because I have anxiety about the outside world. I just think I'm kind of a house cat by nature. Right. And um, you're okay with that. Well, and, and I remember telling a therapist once that I think one of the, I don't want to call it a trauma trigger, but like, I think when that whole idea of like, when, when neurotypical people want people with autism to be something that they're not, and especially when it comes to socializing, mm -hmm. like, you know, push the kid with autism into the outside world and have them engage. Right. And one day I told my therapist, like, I think people wanted me to be a dog when I was really a cat. Mm. And she thought it was such a powerful metaphor because dogs are just, they love people. They want to go outside and they want right, to, right. you know, they want to be active and cats just want to lounge and they're not very social. Right. And, and it was just this powerful epiphany of like, if it's not my nature to be that, that socially engaged person, why would mm. people make me do that? Mm. Um, anyway, as an adult, Going back to work after the weekend was really difficult. And and I will say this, I loved my job. Mm -hmm. And I would say, putting aside COVID, um, I didn't feel like I worked at schools that were tough. Um, I, you know, I mean, I feel like teaching is tough in general, but I didn't feel like the demographic of kids was super difficult. Right. Um, and yet. I just, I would just constantly have anxiety. And I'm like, I don't understand why I'm anxious because I love my job. I love my students. I have a great setup with the, the classes I'm teaching and the classroom I have. Right. Um, but what I realized is that teaching was overtaxing my nervous system. And specifically, um, I was getting socially overstimulated. And if you think about it, the onslaught of socializing you have to do as a teacher, even if you are a social person with autism, it is just mm -hmm. a lot. And so two days right. just was not enough for my nervous system to recover. And, and I will even say, having left my teaching job, I still had anxiety for the whole month of January because I just had this like, it was almost like a PTSD reaction of thinking I had to go back to work on Sundays. Um, and I would say that anxiety, uh, and that lack of stability lasted for at least a month. Um, mm. and, and I remember like, even though you, you get two months off, I mean, you know, I remember May, it just felt like this crawl to the finish line. And I think a lot of teachers feel that way, but when you have an overstimulated nervous system and May is just extremely busy Right. you really feel like it's a crawl. And, and then I, I just remember spending my, you know, two months of summer, I'm, I'm lesson planning. So then that's not a source of stress during the school year. So that's not really recuperating. But on top of that, um, I just was scared. I was scared of going back to work, right. not because I hated my job, but because I, my body couldn't handle the con nine months of onslaught of socializing. Mm. Um, and, right. and my body just didn't have the capability to bounce back after um, two days. Mm. And so 
one of the reasons I'm going into counseling is because my, my therapist was like, if you have a private practice, you're going to have a lot more autonomy over how many people you see in a day, you right. know, the type and environment you're in the sensory, the sensory input. And, and I don't want to mm -hmm. say that my, my school building was creating sensory stress, but you know, you never know. It's a, yeah, it's a high school experience. So, and that's, there's a whole bunch of things, even in the most well-maintained building that that's just, you know, craziness happens. There's, well, a, there's a bunch of students in the hallway, you know, yeah. you have fire alarms, you have drills all the time. You, you have, there's a lot of, you know, this is not the typical thing, right? There's oh my God. We didn't that, even talk about like transitions when there's fire alarms. Talk about yeah. like drop everything and go. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Even if it is a drill. I mean, not that I struggled with it because usually um, teachers are made aware when it's a drill. But the, you know, this sometimes ideally yeah. the students shouldn't know. I, I would tell my students if it was snowing, cause I'd be like, go grab your jacket because there's nothing worse than standing outside in the freezing cold when you didn't <laughs> dress for it. Yeah. And I'm always like, bring my coat, you know, all that kind right. of stuff. Um, yeah. And so I, I, I guess like, I didn't realize going into my job, how taxing Mm -hmm. it was going to be for my nervous system and and having that recovery time and i've and i've met people with autism who can only do part-time work because five days a week is just too much for them yeah um so i think that that's important to consider um and i noticed that my transition struggles they got way worse after long breaks or if i had been sick for a while and especially when I was a kid, if I got sick, I would milk being sick as long as I could mm. because I just did not want to go back to school. And then inevitably you have to. So there was a lot of crying. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when I would when I would tell people about my feelings, um, I would have people say, well, everybody experiences the Monday blues. And it's like, yeah. yeah, I know people experience the Monday blues, but you don't know what it's like to have the Monday blues when you have a constantly dysregulated nervous system. Yeah. Um, and and it just felt like on the weekends, I just wanted to lock myself in my apartment and not go outside because mm -hmm. my nervous system just couldn't handle outside stimuli, which is really hard because, you know, you got to go to the grocery store or maybe you have appointments or you try to have a social life. And, and it's hard to keep up with that because by the end of it, you're just burned out. And even if you make time for yourself, mm -hmm. it's not enough time. Yeah. Um, so it's, so it's really, really hard. Um, kind of switching gears. I, I had talked about, um, autistic fixations in a previous episode and transitioning out of a fixation state uh, is very, very, very tough. Mm. And one of the things I talked about in that episode is when I was a new teacher, I would spend my summer's lesson planning, which I definitely felt was a valuable use of my time. Mm -hmm. It prevented me from doing that work during the school year, which I know would have burned me out. Right. Um, and so I, I feel like it wasn't that I enjoyed or was engrossed in lesson planning it was more like i was engrossed in getting things crossed off my to-do list mm -hmm. and you know lesson planning and especially when you're an art teacher you you also have to make the projects 
right. your students are going to do. So then you know what the steps are. And I had to take photos sure. of every step and create a PowerPoint. So, mm. you know, it's, it's extra work. Sure. Um, and so I would get so engrossed in just wanting to spend eight to 10 hours just getting these things done. So then I was that much closer to having a summer that I can enjoy. Yeah. And then if I had to transition to, you know, run an errand or even like during the school year, if I was grading um, and then all of a sudden the planning period's over and I have to teach a class, but my mind is like focused on grading mm. that that was really hard. And I really don't know how to explain it. It just uh, I don't want to go so far as to call it an addiction because addiction is a very loaded word, right. but when you have a fixation on something, there is a physiological response where something in your body that you're not consciously controlling is clinging onto that task. Mm -hmm. And you experience, it's almost like withdrawal, I guess. It's like, it's like your body has a really hard time being away from the thing that it's, it's getting some sort of dopamine rush from. Right. Um, and so I think like, you know, like I said, I, I, I hate using the word addiction because I think that's a loaded word, but I think withdrawal is a very good word to use to talk about like what it really feels like to step away from a fixation. And so what, what's helped me as somebody who has practiced meditation for, you know, at least 15 years, mm -hmm. I like being able to, um, kind of have like a grounding meditation, even if it's like one or two minutes, just to kind of give my body a moment of stillness to recognize that there's a transition occurring. So it's not like right. I'm aggressively disrupting the fixation. And then um, I got to rush around my place to find my purse and then I'm going. Um, right. it, it, that transition is sort of slowed down a bit and my body is getting acclimated. Mm. So it's kind of like what we were talking about earlier, where like you have timers and all that. Yes. The timers are not just for your brain to be aware of the transition. It's also for your body mm. to be aware that the, that the transition is happening. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I definitely, you know, feel like my biggest transition struggle was going from being a college student to a working professional. And right. I didn't think that I was going to have that transition struggle because I mentally felt ready to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. Um, but I mean the, the physiological reaction to the transition, like led to a chronic meltdown state. And yeah. I, I, I talked about this in our episode about meltdowns, but yeah. I, I was basically stuck in a meltdown mode for seven days that I wasn't able to get out of with all the mindfulness tools that I have. Mm -hmm. And it was really, really scary and confusing. And I didn't understand why it was happening. And so a therapist had the assumption that maybe that was a withdrawal symptom right. from the routine and lifestyle of being a student. So even though I was still working at a school, I wasn't a student anymore. I was, I was the leader. And, you know, yeah. and I think that mentally there was a part of me that's like, I'm ready to take on that responsibility because I'm bored being the student teacher and I, I don't want to be in college anymore. Um, but when your body is used to this routine that you've had for your entire life, 
it's really hard for that that to break, mm -hmm. even though that's the next natural step. Um, right. And so, and and I would even go so far as to say the four years of autism therapy I had, you know, I think that modeled the routine and structure of school life. Mm -hmm. So that particular routine and structure has been in my life from age two mm. to age 28. Yeah. So that's a really big shift. So I, I can understand why there was a, a biological response. And right. luckily I had yeah. two months off between, um, you know, applying for jobs, finishing up my student teaching, and then mm -hmm working a summer job. And then from there, I, I started my job as a teacher. So there was a little bit of downtime. And, and with that downtime, like my body was kind of able to adjust to, you know, realizing that tr the transition was going to happen. And, right, right. and yeah. And I, and I think that what it taught me is that there's a body experience of transition and there was a mm. mind experience of transition and they're not right. always on the same page. Yeah. So um, you, you talked about your physical, um, manifestations and the toll that it took on you. What, what strategies or tools did you have to help you through that? Um, like I said before, I I've practiced various mindfulness exercises for half of my life. I've done yoga, meditation, um, Reiki, which is a type of Japanese energy healing. Mm. Um, what else I've, I've tried Qigong and Tai Chi as well. Um, and you know, I'm an artist. So when I was younger, like you couldn't pull me away from my sketchbook. Mm. Um, and I've been better about exercising, although exercise is tricky because with a highly sensitive nervous system, you can't push yourself too far. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's certain types of exercises that will, uh, agitate your nervous system. Yeah. So those I would say were probably the biggest things that I used, um, for coping with transition, you know, just having a daily routine and making sure that daily routine was fairly consistent to kind of mm -hmm. handle the change. Um, but at the end of the day, all I could do was go with the motions of how I was feeling. Um, and you know, I think being gentle with yourself. And I'll say this as an adult who struggled with transitions, like even if you're mentally like trying to coach yourself to be ready for the transition, um, some people just need time. And it's kind of like being right. sick, like mentally, you're like, all right, like, you know, I'm not laying in bed. I need to get going, but your body is like, no, I need to rest. So yeah. I think that that's a good way of, of looking at it. Um, the best way, you know, to handle transitions is go to therapy, um, whatever therapy works for you. Um, and really, you know, talk about why transitions are hard mm -hmm. and have both a mind-based solution and a body-based solution for mm -hmm. handling it. Um, it's also important to recognize that transitions trigger an extreme loss of control and predictability for a person with autism. Mm -hmm. Transition transitions lead to an environment that can be physically unsafe for our nervous system and emotionally unsafe for our well-being. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you think about it, um, 
I mean, you know, if you're getting constantly sensory overstimulated and then you're surrounded by people who bully you or alienate you, right? of course you don't want to leave your room. Right. So we unconsciously develop a defense mechanism by resisting change. Transitions are inevitable. Just like we need to develop a tolerance for frustration, we also need to develop a tolerance for change. To do that, the person with autism needs to feel a sense of control in a situation that they lack control with. Mm -hmm. And again, I think that 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 sense of autonomy can be really cathartic as an adult, you know, because when you're a kid, you're just at the whim to what your parents want you to do. And as much as I think parents are good about, you know, not forcing the child with autism to be in situations that are overstimulating, like sometimes you just got to go to this grocery store and you got to bring your kid. Yeah. Can't leave them home alone. Yeah, you can't leave them home alone. And so I think like as an adult who is aware of the strengths and struggles of being in a neurodiverse body, you have a lot more autonomy to say, I don't want to go to the grocery store. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do a meal delivery service. Right, Um, right. And so that, that feeling of control can really help. Um, and you know, it's normal for adults to discover that, that sense of autonomy, because for, you know, up to that point, three quarters of your life, you didn't have that autonomy. You were exploring it, but it wasn't really there. Um, I also found it helpful to deal with major life transitions by reading about how people with autism thrive in those new situations. Mm. Um, so for example, I, I'm not like tomorrow my husband and I are going to have a kid, but you know, I, my peers are having kids. Um, my husband is six years younger than me. So it's, we're in this weird place where like my husband has a bunch of friends who are single, uh, or dating, like only a handful of them are married and they're certainly not thinking about kids. Meanwhile, people in my age group already have kids. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I also have a good handful of friends who don't want kids. And then I have friends who've had kids way long ago. Um, And so I go back and forth of like some days I want kids and some days I get scared of having kids because I'm scared of how that child is going to tax my nervous system. Um, and especially with the struggles I went through as a teacher being continuously overstimulated by my students yeah. and, and I could leave that, but I can't leave my child. Um, and then especially like, well, what if they're sensory defensive and then I'm sensory defensive. Um, and so that, that's scary for me. And, Mm -hmm. and there was a lot of, um, catastrophizing of like, I'm never going to have kids because I'm not able-bodied and, mm. you know, but then I, I, the next day after I cried, I was like, yeah. all right, I'm, I'm going to start doing some research on articles about autistic parents raising their own kids with autism. Mm-hmm. And that made me feel so much better because just having an understanding of like, these people are going through the same struggles I am. Those kids are putting their nervous system through the ringer, but they're making it work. And, um, and, and it is also gratifying because there's not a lot of books or, uh, resources for parents of people with autism that are also autistic. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, it, 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 it's soothing to me to know that I won't be alone. There are other people like me out there. Um, 
anyway, the last thing I'll say is I also felt like I handled transitions better when my world wasn't so busy. Oh, for sure. Um, and I just feel like it's easy to kind of be this workaholic and be fixated and scatter yourself. And I feel like, you know, especially right now, I'm not working. I'm starting grad school. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're recording early May. Uh, I think this episode is going to be published way later than that. But but as of right is. now, I mean, I'm I'm going to start grad school in two weeks and and to start grad school after five months of not working, you know, that is going to be a, a big transition. There's a transition so, right there for you. Yep. Right. And so I think uh, it's been helpful for me to, you know, have a little bit of downtime to kind of bring closure yes. to this time off. But then also like, uh, and I did this when I was a teacher with summers off, I would start to kind of do get into that working routine mm. like one to two weeks early so mm -hmm. then the transition back to work wasn't going to be as uh hard yeah that makes um sense. yeah yeah so what were some things that your parents helped you with in terms of transitions uh, my mom was usually the one that helped me to deal with my transition anxiety she was a stay-at-home parent um what worked was a lot of love patience and compassion for this yes. being such a big struggle for me especially with the social anxiety. Um, sometimes I just needed a hug from my parents to let me know that mm -hmm. they were there for me. It was going to be okay. Um, just to know that for all of the struggles that I was going to go through at school, I could come home and know that there were people there that were going to love me and yeah. care for me and, you know, give me space when I wanted to be alone in my room for the rest of the day. Yeah. Um, moral support was really key. Um, and at the same time I was held accountable to make the transition and there was belief mm. from my parents and from me that I could handle the transition. Um, and I also wanted to engage in the transition process. Mm -hmm. My parents and I worked well together to help me find therapeutic resources to help me deal with transition better. Now, mm. one thing I will add is I feel like that patience and compassion was there when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And I think it goes back to how my parents were educated about autism because right. they were of the belief that like I could be healed from autism or like if I had an autistic struggle, I wouldn't go through it again. And so I was making a lot of progress from being a kid to being an adult. And then when I started working, I started struggling. Now, those struggles were different. Um, you know, when I was younger, my, my struggles were more about socializing. And when I was an adult, my struggles were more about sensory input. Mm. Um, but I remember when I was having a lot of transition stress and being in meltdown mode from going from student teaching to my job, my dad was like, oh, you just have a self-esteem issue. It's a right. confidence issue. Right, and right. I'm like, it's not a self-esteem issue. I have a great sense of self-esteem, but I'm having an issue with the the transition. Mm. And so I feel like my dad in particular wasn't understanding at that time why it was hard. Yes. And he was trying to think about it from the neurotypical lens because, mm -hmm. it, you know, and I remember there was one day we were walking together and I was talking to him about my struggles and he goes, Oh, I thought we were past this autism thing. Right. And I'm like, wow, like you really 
have no clue. So yeah. it's taken a lot of like transparent conversations with my parents to say like, I still struggle as an adult and it's okay. Cause I'm still making it work. But my parents had no idea that I would continue to struggle or that, that I would struggle maybe worse than mm -hmm. I was. And, and some of those struggles uh, really took a toll on my mental health. And, right. uh, and there were some, you know, concerning periods with my mental health. And so I think it really caught my parents off guard. And so to that, I would say like, just because somebody overcomes a struggle in a certain stage of their life, doesn't mean that struggle isn't going to come back. And right. I think that it's important for parents of young adults with autism to be aware that autism isn't going anywhere. Mm -hmm. It's always going to be there. There's always going to be a struggle and to not be bewildered and, and also to continue your research if you want to. And if you don't just listen to your child and, and hear their struggles and know yes. that it's valid, even if you can't personally relate to that lived experience. Yes, that makes sense. How about your transition anxiety uh, with your marriage? How has um, that been? Well, so I, I, I guess I want to clarify, I didn't have transition anxiety with getting married. It was more like transition struggles I dealt with in relation to my relationship with my now husband. Yes, that um, makes sense. So I met my husband in college, quote unquote. I was in my post-bachelor teaching license program and he was a sophomore in college. And so we didn't graduate at the same time. So during my student teaching and my first year of teaching, we had a long distance relationship, which it mm -hmm. really wasn't, you know, some people are like, that's not long distance. It was only like an hour and 15, hour and 30 minutes away. Sure. Uh, he was in Fort Collins. I was in Denver. It, it compared to people who live in different states or uh, right. we had friends who like, you know, did study abroads and their significant other was in the States. Like that's long distance. But when you're autistic right. and you have a highly sensitive nervous system, making the commitment to drive an hour and a half regularly is a lot. Right. Stress um, of driving. Yes. For yeah. Sure. And so on the surface, it wasn't that big of a deal. Um, we saw each other once a week and we, we traded off. Um, but by the, but like towards the end of, uh, his, final year. And it was like my first semester of teaching. I called him one day crying and I said, I can't drive anymore. Mm. It's too much. Mm -hmm. And so then for the last two months, he had to commute, which then took a toll on him. No, for sure. But I was like, I just physically can't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, because it was just like my, my anxiety and physical exhaustion were like debilitating. Um, and it was impacting my ability to go to work. Um, the other thing that was really difficult was like, I would just get so sad and anxious when he left. Mm. And so he, you know, and I think this happened both ways, you know, so if I left his apartment or if he left my apartment, I just remember walking into his car and I would just start crying. Mm. Um, and he didn't know what to do. And it happened exactly. every, every weekend. Yeah, and, what's going on now? What are and you doing? I don't, and I, and I can't rationally explain why the crying happened because it wasn't like I was codependent on him. It wasn't like I had issues with being alone. I just, that, that transition 
was so, that was, I guess, probably another form of nervous system taxing. Interesting. Um, and, and I think because he was such a big part of how I co-regulated mm. losing him, uh, to the work week was, was so, so hard. And one of the ways I coped with it, um, was that I couldn't walk him to his car. So he mm. had to leave, uh, while I was still in my apartment because I just, the, you know, walking right, right. him down, seeing him get into his car, watching him leave. It was like too much for me emotionally. So interesting. Okay. It, it, I guess it wasn't as bad if I was in my safe space mm -hmm. and I didn't see him leave. I don't know why that worked, but that's, that's yeah. how we did okay. it. Um, there was also a really big transition stressor when we got engaged. Um, he had a really tough time finding work after he graduated. A lot of that having to do with COVID. Right. And he, you know, he wasn't working a career job. And I had an upbringing where I believe that a stable partner was somebody that had a career job. So mm -hmm. I had a lot of anxiety of like, is this person going to be a financially stable person if he's not able to get a career job? Yeah. And so, um, and I, and I, I remember just getting really impatient with him, like, come on, like get your career job, which I wasn't helping. Like mm -hmm. he's, I'm, I'm shaming him for something he has no control over. Right. And so, uh, so I got scared. I'm like, I have a biological clock. If this doesn't work, I got to go through this whole process with somebody else. And, <laughs> and I was just, I was scared. And then I had yeah. other people that were like, you know, well, That's if you cool. want kids, and so it was just this, it was so tough. Wow. So then finally, when he proposed to me, which was uh, earlier than I thought, because I thought he was going to propose to me after he got his career job. Now, mm -hmm. granted, we'd, we'd been together for four years. Right. Um, but I, I, you know, I mean, I said, yes, I wanted to marry him. I do feel like he is my life partner, which is why that, that anxiety of like, things are not perfect mm -hmm. uh, was so tough for me. And so when he did propose, of course I said yes. And I was super excited. And then mm -hmm. the week after that, it was like, oh no, I'm in this unstable situation that I perceived to be unstable. <laughs> That's awesome. And so, um, Get a job. And, well, and you Get know, my job. dad was, you know, making wrongful assumptions about him because mm -hmm. he didn't have a career job. Okay. And I kept trying to explain, like, it's not his fault, but right. you know, you, you don't know how much of it is not their fault. Mm -hmm. And so then I was like, well, maybe we could delay the, you know, the marriage until you get a career job, which that mm. created a lot of conflict between the two of us. Mm, for sure. And it wasn't until um, our family financial advisor was like, as long as he's making good money, does it really matter if he has a career job? Mm. And at the time he was working as a, a liquor, he was a backstocker at a liquor store. He was making almost as much money as I did as a teacher, yeah. which is not great money, but, but it was way more was than something. I thought it was going to be. Sure. Um, so, so part of that transition anxiety was that I had no idea how much he was making and that it was actually... Mm about as much money as he would have made um, if he had a career job as a graphic designer. Right. And so I realized that my transition anxiety had a lot to do with my implicit bias around mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. blue collar jobs. Sure. And so um, once I got engaged, 
and kind of had this understanding like once you get engaged and once you get married you can't break up you get a divorce like that is a big lengthy process with money on the table right. you know and i think that created a lot of pressure of like do i end it do i continue and right right so that you know that goes to show that you know we all have these mindsets mm -hmm. to begin yeah. with right and then those those are impacted by um, all sorts of other factors and so our assumptions are built into that and so when you know those things that you are experiencing feed into those assumptions it's like that's extra stress and all kinds of things yeah yeah and and i think that the reason that transition was so hard was because i had perfectionist standards of him mm. even though i didn't think they were perfectionist um i realized that if if this is truly my life partner I have to accept him from where he is in the present moment. Absolutely. And rather than being afraid and leaving him, I need to be his support person to get him to the place both of us want him to go. Sure. And so I started doing research. You know, my coping skill is research. Research. But, yes. but I started, you know, listening to the stories of people where, you know, a significant other is in a career transition or, you know, they're unemployed and how they dealt with it. And so finally, I'm like, oh, I have these skills and now I know how to support my husband. So that transition wasn't scary anymore because I knew what to do. And and like I said earlier, uh, it went from being afraid of, is this going to work to how do we make it work? That's awesome. That's a good mindset shift right there. Yeah. And, so and, it, and it ended up working, you know, he now has a career job. I now don't have a career job. Yeah, uh, so isn't our, that funny? Our roles hmm. reversed, but hmm. you know, it's like we've reflected on that a lot, and and he's been so supportive to me that it. I just feel so bad that <laughs> I uh, wasn't yes. able to support him that way. But he's like, well, you know, you have an anxiety disorder, you have autism, so yes, yes, we've moved past it. But but I yes. think that experience was so valuable for me to realize, like our relationship can handle anything. And, and when you transition as a couple from an ideal relationship situation to something that's not perfect, it doesn't mean that the relationship is over. Right. And so that goes to real quick, um, how he helps you transition. Um, you know, he's done a lot of things that my parents did really well. It's all about being understanding, compassionate, patient, and grounded. And he's really, really good at that. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so let's shift gears a little bit and talk about supporting students that have transition struggles. Nicole, what do you do to support a student with autism that struggles with transitions? Um, most of the students that I've had that struggled with transitions usually had a para mm -hmm. that helped them deal with the transition process. It was something that I never personally had to, you know, to intervene and support with. Um, that's not always the case in schools, especially if you have a student who does not have an autism diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I really tried to make sure that all of my routines and processes were neurodiverse friendly. I wouldn't yes. say I was perfect at it. You know, when you're a, a new teacher, it's like trial and error every year. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and it's about fine tuning the process until probably about five to seven years into your career. Yeah. Um, but it was really important to me as a neurodiverse person who's a neurodiverse ally uh, that, you know, my whole classroom benefited from that. So, um, 
I, and it was that whole idea of teach to the IEP, you know, yes. every benefit, everybody benefits from having uh, early advanced notice about transitions. They all benefit from timers. They all benefit from right, right. some sense of a visual schedule. And consistency and routine. Yeah. How about you, Brett? Um, so if we're talking about um, supporting students, you know, I, I'd like to know what the student's strengths are. So usually it's, you know, in terms of are they visual learners? Are they tactile, um, auditory? You know, what what is their strength? And so working from that, then I love this idea of having a, a visual posting of a schedule. So it's you can for visual learners, you can see it and it's it's understandable for you for the, the tactile learners, kinesthetic learners, physically, you know, helping them move from one place to another place. Um, it, you know, kind of depends on where they are in the spectrum. Do they need extra time and passing period? Because, you know, the passing period gives them anxiety because there's too many kids in the hall. Right. So you make an accommodation that they get to leave five minutes early, those kinds of things. And, and like you said, it's like understanding the IEP, knowing what their strengths are and being being consistent. I mean, as a teacher, that's something that we can try to be consistent for all of our students. You know, we do we have routines and we don't we don't randomly change it. Right. So yeah. every time I was like, oh, this is a routine. I don't want to you know, go crazy and like throw out my lesson plans and let's do something totally crazy and unique. It's like when we have something due, I'm not going to do that to my students. I'm, it's always going to be um, predictable and routine. And, and I think that helps out a lot, actually. Yeah. Um, I was going to say something about that. Oh, well, I think COVID really taught us the importance of consistency and routine. For, yeah, that's for true. Everybody. No, um, I was, yeah, I was a constant, you know, we're in person. Now we're yes. hybrid. Now we're remote. We're back right. to hybrid. Um, yeah, that was a year it, that it I was really through them for a loop. Yeah, that was a year that I was um, 100% online as a teacher. And that was, ooh, that was not fun for me. That was not fun for the kids. I mean, I couldn't get build those relationships that I could because I'm more of a in person guy, you know, talking to somebody face to face, I could read a room, get the get a sense of of everything. And that didn't happen. And so again, what replaces that routine, we're always going to do this Monday, we're always going to do this Tuesday, we're always going to start the class the same, we're always going to end class the same. Right. And so, you know, some people thrived in that some students thrived and other others hated it. Yeah. And, and I'll say this too. Um, I, I, I get, I just can't even fathom, like, having been a student, because it was hard as a teacher mm -hmm. to just constantly pinball back and forth. No, it, um, yeah, it was, it, it, that was a struggle for your, for many teachers and students. It was not something yeah. we want to repeat. Well, and I think that what a lot of people who are not in education don't realize is like how relationships play a role in classroom management in mm -hmm. accommodations. And when you teach remote, the kids just, you know, they either turn their cameras off or they stare at you and are just yeah, totally that's, unresponsive. That's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. And so that, that definitely, um, and I think, you know, for somebody who struggles with transitions and there is that block because of a computer screen, I mean, yeah, it's, it's going to be hard to advocate or be transparent about your struggles. Yeah. Okay. So let getting towards the end of this, um, do you want to talk real quick about your struggles as a teacher? And then we'll go into advice for employers. 
Yeah, I didn't struggle with transitions in my daily routine of being a teacher. I made sure that I avoided walking through the school during passing period um, when massive amounts of students are in the hallway. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, when I did start realizing that, you know, I'm I'm a social person, uh, but what I didn't realize is even though I like talking to people and I like talking in general, if you couldn't tell from the length of this podcast. Um, right, right. I'm not an extrovert. I don't get rejuvenated by socializing. And so what I was noticing is if I talk to people during my planning periods or after school uh, or during passing period, it was just, uh, what do they call it? Like pouring water out of your cup. Like mm. uh, you just, your resources get lower. So then I'd come home mm -hmm. and I'm just fried. Yeah. And so what I started doing was uh, during passing period, I would lock myself in a closet that was completely black, you know, like no windows, nothing. And I would just sit there and I'd, I'd meditate for like one to two minutes. And then I would go join my students rather than standing in the hallway, greeting everybody. I used to do that, um, but I realized I wasn't getting a break um, yeah. from the socializing. So that was a health choice that I needed to do. And not that I think it made a huge difference, but I think it made a little difference. Um, one transition I dealt with was being called to cover someone else's class during my planning period. If I was directly approached by somebody and asked to do it, um, that wasn't a problem and that didn't happen often. And, you know, like I remember there were uh, times where I'd, I'd walk to run an errand in the school and you know, admin is scrambling because they're trying to cover a teacher who had an emergency. And I'd be like, yes. oh, I'm I can do it. Okay. Um, where it became a problem was when there was this mass email sent out mm. and uh, and it would be like, all right, here are all the teachers and here are all the times. And uh, and I think that there was just the stress of like, well, if I cover this class, what am I sacrificing not getting done? Right. And, and, and I just needed that sense of routine and structure um, to know, you know, what I was going to accomplish in that passing period before students came. But at the same time, it was like, well, I want to be helpful in the community sure. and I want to help. You know, I didn't want admin to feel strained mm -hmm. um, and you get paid extra if you cover somebody's class. Sure. Um, and so. There were a couple of times where like I'd send an email and I'd be like, all right, I'm going to do it. And then I wouldn't hear anything. And then I'm just like, my right. whole morning was just so anxiety right, right. driven because I'm like, am I am doing I this? Leaving? Am I not doing this? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And and then there were times where like I physically would walk up to talk to the substitute secretary who in the morning, you don't talk to the substitute secretary. Oh, she's definitely frazzled. stay away. Yeah. Stay so, away from so she, and, and we had a great relationship. She actually was a parent of a son on the spectrum, mm -hmm. but in that morning, she's like, do not come up to me. You need to email <laughs> me. And I'm like, Oh God, sorry, I messed up. Yeah. And so it, it was That's just awesome. too, it was too stressful. And then you go through all that and then they go, Oh, well, we already got coverage. Yes. So I just decided I'm like, somebody else is going to cover it. I don't right. need to do it. So I just, unless I was directly approached um, right. and I was the only one that was asked and I was asked, um, you know, well in advance or, mm -hmm. you know, unless it was somebody in my department, like I just didn't do it. Right. And, and that makes sense. You're, you're making choices that um, are going to be best for you. 
Well, because it, it's that uh, the second that you cover for somebody else's class, there's this huge unknown of like, mm -hmm. where is the class and sure. what are the students working on? And I don't know this subject. And right. what if and the person doesn't have lesson plans because it was an emergency? And, and where's where the do they attendance? Turn things in? And where's yeah, everybody where's supposed the to attendance? sit? Like, yes. Oh my God. It, it, it is for, for being autistic, taking all of that on, it's too much. Exactly. And so again, like if it's a one-off thing and I have preparation for it, that's fine. But if it's like that mass email and it's, and it's like, oh, mm -hmm. you know, I had a, I, I used to have a coworker friend where he would cover classes almost twice a week. And I'm yeah. like, I can't do that. Definitely not. Yep. Um, know but yourself. He wanted the money. So yeah. Sure. Know um, the thing that I would like all employers, especially administrators and instructional coaches to know is that an autistic person's first job incurs a huge, huge amount of transition stress. Mm. That person is experiencing the stress of being an independent adult and figuring out how to do job tasks that they have no experience with before. Mm -hmm. And that causes the person with autism to come off very frazzled and lost which I certainly went through, not only because I was autistic, because I was a new yes, teacher. For sure. And that's hard. If you know that the person has autism, support them keeping in mind that this major life transition is incredibly difficult for them. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. also, most of us autistics are not experts on what struggles we experience in the workplace. And that mm. adds a lot of stress to the equation. You know, at the school you and I worked at, um, I remember our my our instructional coach was like, well, you could use my office if you ever need to decompress from overstimulation, which don't ever suggest that yeah. because you don't know how often that person needs that safe space. And so, you know, the amount of times I was coming to her for help, she was so caught off guard by like, wow, this person is really struggling and she's very mm. codependent. And I'm like, I don't want to be codependent. Right, right, right. I didn't think I was going to struggle this badly. Yes. And she didn't so. think I was going to struggle that badly. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that uh, regardless of whether some where somebody is on the autism spectrum, it's just hard. And, mm -hmm. and we experience issues at work that we are not always prepared or realize are going to tax us. Yes. Um, and I think having a mentor, you know, like you, um, grounded me into the transition of being a teacher, you know, just, just being able to have somebody to talk to, to be like, you know, I'm struggling with this. I don't know why. And you might not have the answer, but you're going to listen because you get it or yes. because you, you know, are raising a person with autism, you go, well, this might be why. And then I go, mm -hmm. oh, maybe you're right. So yes. that, that helped a lot. Um, Brett, do you have any advice for an employer if they have an employee that's struggling with transition stress? Well, I think um, kind of what we already talked about. It's like um, the things that are de-stressors are routine and consistency. So establish those as much as you can with the employee and what they're doing, making sure that they're crystal clear on what their expectations are and what they need to do and what what um, chores or tasks that they have to have. So if they're crystal clear on this and that doesn't change, that's going to help. The other thing that can help is, you know, have an open conversation with your employees, be that safe person to talk to, to help them work through options for stress and help manage change. 
Yeah, and and I'll add this too, really quick. I think kids with autism get normed by adults knowing what to do. Mm -hmm. Employers are not going to know what to do. An employer is not going to provide you with a visual schedule, not going to provide you with a timer. You, as the autistic adult, have to provide that for yourself. Yes. Yes. And if you can't or you need support, chances are you're working with an organization uh, where there's uh, that they specialize in disability employment and they have a mentor that's going to provide that support to you. Um, But I think it's really important to be aware that you do struggle with transitions. And when you go into that accommodation discussion or you're just saying, hey, this is really hard for me, be prepared to offer some solutions so that Mm. you're not putting it on the employer to solve everything for you. Mm Because more likely than not, they're either going to have no clue what to do or they're going to give you advice that's actually not helpful, even though they think it's helpful. And the more uh, burden that they carry of having to find all the answers to accommodate you, they're probably not going to want to keep you because it's just too much of a burden on them and too much emotional stress, too, potentially too much financial stress, and yes. they might not keep you. So just make sure that you are as prepared as possible to state your problem, state your solution, and negotiate with it, your employer. Mm-hmm. Um on what's going to work best for you. Absolutely. That sounds good. All right. So we're coming to the end of this episode. So we talked about change, why change creates stress for everyone and how that applies to people with autism. We talked about uh, why people have resistance to change. And finally, we talked a lot about solutions, our own experiences for helping a person with autism deal with transition stress. All right. Our next episode is uh, why we, we no, already sorry, go ahead. did this one. So actually right, our, go next, for it. You our next episode <laughs> is actually going to be about, um, so it's, it's kind of a two part. Well, not counting how long the episodes are, but, um, we're going to be doing a couple of episodes that are focusing on phobias, autism mm-hmm. and the relation with mm-hmm. phobia. So our next episode is going to be about the uh, general experience with phobia. So we're not focusing on a specific phobia. If we did, that would be a crazy long series. But then the episode after that, we're going to talk about autism and emetophobia, which is the fear of vomiting, which I do have personal experience with. And I definitely feel like there's a link between that and autism. So that's good. That's (laughs) good. I know it was kind of like when I was talking about meltdowns and I was, I was super chipper and you were like, why are you chipper about that? And it's like, yay, we're going to be talking about phobias. It's all good. (laughs) All right. So follow understanding autism on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to receive updates on our upcoming podcast episodes. I also make artwork and poetry to promote each episode. Subscribe to understanding autism on YouTube and listen to us on Spotify, iTunes, Google play, all that good stuff. Like, subscribe, and leave a comment. And if you have questions for us, post them on our Facebook group or email us at Brett and Nicole at understandingautism.info. And if you need our website, it is understandingautism.info. Really quick to note, there is also an understandingautism.com. That is not us. We are understandingautism.info. That's right. Know the difference. All right. (laughs) Thank you for tuning in, and we will see you next week. Until then, I am Brett Thayer. And I'm Nicole Cabellas. 